The How To Academy podcast is the bi-weekly show from London's home of big thinking. They host exclusive in-depth interviews with world-leading scholars, artists, scientists, and entrepreneurs, exploring new ideas for understanding and changing our world. Past guests include Bill Clinton, Neil deGrasse Tyson, Elizabeth Gilbert, Daniel Kahneman, Marina Abramovich, Malcolm Gladwell, Michael Lewis, Joyce Carol Oates, Gabor Mate, Chelsea Manning, and many more. That's the How To Academy podcast, to the word, not the numeral, on Apple, Spotify, or wherever podcasts are found. Welcome to Artificiality, brought to you by the founders of Saunders Studio. Artificiality is a podcast dedicated to understanding the emerging community that is humans and machines. We take the latest in the human side, decision science, psychology, and design, and put it together with advances in artificial intelligence and big data so that you can understand how to work better with machines and your fellow humans. We founded Saunders Studio to help people be more human in the age of AI. We're on this learning journey too, so we strive to find the frontiers, to ask the best questions, and stay curious. We interview some of the top minds working at the intersection of humans and machines and make sure we have a few laughs along the way. Making decisions with data requires some form of communication with data. But how do we communicate with numbers and characters and binary bits? The best way today is through data visualization. Visualizing data has come a long way since the early days of hand-drawn charts and graphs, starting with the desktop publishing revolution of the 1980s through to the current world of data viz tools in the cloud, anyone can create a graphical representation of data. While in many ways this democratization of data visualization is a good thing, it also means we're awash with charts and graphs, many of which unintentionally don't tell the story intended, some intentionally mislead. Visualizing data well is more complex than you might think, and that's why we reached out to a true expert in the field, Molly Pettit, to talk about how she approaches visualization. In particular, we were interested in some of the more complex issues, like how to visualize confidence in data. Molly, thank you so much for joining us. We're excited to have you here. Yeah, happy to be here. Molly, what role does data visualization play in helping humans understand data? Yeah, sure. Uh, it's a great question, and it has a it plays a huge role. Um, anyone that has ever looked at like a massive data set can understand why, right? Because uh, so often, like we we don't have this, a good ability to understand just like massive sheets of data. We can't look at that and gain something from it quickly, um, and. Even if, like, you have the summary statistics, that's not always, like, good enough. Have you ever heard of Anscombe's Quartet, actually? You have. Okay. Those who don't know Anscombe's Quartet, uh, it's an example of, like, it's a really good example of a time where visualization is imperative to understanding the data. So the Quartet consists of four data sets, and all of them have the same summary statistics, uh, which means, like, mean and variance and linear regression and everything. They have the same values for all of these. But if you actually like look at the visualizations of the data, they're extremely different and they tell a very different story. Uh, so visualization is like necessary to see why these data sets are different. So the thing that's so great about visualization is it can tell you a story of a data set in a matter of seconds that would be really difficult to parse otherwise. Um, of course, granted, uh, this means that data visualization 
Uh, it also comes with a certain responsibility. It can be too easy to tell the wrong story, um, whether intentionally or unintentionally, if you don't provide all the context. So it's just something to be wary of and to keep in mind and make sure we're doing our best uh, to uh, provide everything necessary. Yeah, I get um, one of the things that that I find like quite difficult with visualization. It, now that now that I'm so much more aware of what goes wrong in AI and how counterintuitive that can be, or how unintuitive that can be, you, the patterns and data sets that are vast and correlations that don't necessarily have any causality behind them. When I see a visualization now, my first question is, what's this really showing? Mm -hmm. And that becomes, that's not always simple to understand. There can be sudden, there can be things where your intuition is like dead on, it's easy because something's really obvious, something's really small versus something's really big. And, and it sort of, it, it, it tips you off, your alarm bells ring in, a, in an intuitive way. So you naturally ask a question, but more often than not, it's it's just the the data visualizations themselves can be overwhelming in their in their beauty, and mm -hmm. they can be overwhelming in just how much the visual the the person building the visualization is trying to show. Can you sure. talk a little bit about like how do you break down what your what what is really important? How do you ask questions of yourself or of your clients of that? top level meaning like what are we really trying to do here I think it speaks a bit to you talk about being a human-centered AI uh, human-centered data visualization person can you speak a bit a little bit about your process there because I think that'd be really helpful I think what's helpful here is to give a, a work example that I have um, I used to work at a data science consultancy called Datascope Datascope Analytics, and they've actually since been acquired by IDEO. Uh, they serve as the data science team over there, so that's pretty cool. Um, but often we would get projects where we were asked to uh, do data exploration, like the main pro part of the project was data exploration. And that means like knowing what questions to ask of the data. And uh, we'd always start the same way. We'd brainstorm kind of every single question we could possibly think of for the data. And Actually, I should back up, not just of the data, of the topic itself, because what we almost like intentionally did was not look at the data and make sure we didn't try to understand it very well and what was in it before we thought about what questions we had, because that can box you in. That can make you only think of, okay, well, what questions can I find in this data rather than what questions do I have in general? Mm. Um, because sometimes there might be data that you don't have yet that you could get if you, you know, want to answer something. Um, so that was always the first step. And then doing kind of like quick and dirty data visualizations to uncover the answers to those questions. But then the great thing was once we found the answers to those questions, the ones we were most excited about, we would come up with new questions. Uh, it would unearth something that would make us, you know, our curiosities uh, go in different directions. Um, so kind of just doing this process of like ideation, exploration, uh, you know, answering questions and then ideating again on, well, what other questions do we have um, is, can be really great. And visualization, especially when you're kind of just doing quick ones, uh, you know, histograms and bar graphs and line graphs and to quickly see the data can be really helpful for that. 
What's different about human-centered design when you're trying to create a visualization? It's different, I think, when I'm starting a project from scratch versus when I'm getting a project from a client. So something that I would find would often happen uh, when I was freelancing, because I freelanced for a couple years, was someone would come to me with a very specific idea. Like, we have decided that we want you to build this exact thing with this functionality. Um, But what I found was always important at this point was to try to get an understanding of what their goals are. Like when they've decided they wanted to do this, why did they decide they wanted to do that? So I always end up asking a lot of like, why questions? You know, why do you want this feature? What are you trying to accomplish? Who is this for? Uh, Because sometimes if you can get back to the why, you can then ideate on the ways to solve it and come up with something even better Um, rather than, because there's this like, there's this uh, human tendency to have one idea and be like, oh, great, I'm going to go make that now and stopping, like not thinking past that. Um, So anyway, sometimes it can take a lot of why questions with the clients to get to uh, really the underlying root of it. Um, And it can sometimes feel a little repetitive to keep asking why, but I've found that it can be very worth it. And then once you kind of know the motivations and the goals of the visualization, uh, the next step is always uh, to ideate. Uh, Sometimes I've done it alone if I didn't have colleagues to work with, but of course it's always better with other people, with colleagues or users or whoever you can pull in. Um, And for visualization, the way that this often looks different is that it can involve a lot of sketching. So if we already know what we're trying to accomplish, I might sit down for 30 minutes or an hour with a pen and paper and sometimes colored pencils and markers and just sketch out really badly. Like I'm not talking fancy. I'm talking just like, you know, just enough to get uh, the information across of what I'm trying to represent. Um, Just sketch as many ideas as I can think of and think about, okay, well, what do the different ideas optimize for? This one's better at showing X. This one's better at uh, really um, getting Y across, right? So once, uh, you know, we've sketched out as many ideas as we can think of, uh, the next step is if it's, you know, internal, just to decide amongst yourself what the best idea is. But if it was with a client, what I would often do is, uh, you know, create like, I don't know, PowerPoint or something with a bunch of different ideas and really showcase to them what's what's better about each one. Uh, because what that can be really helpful for is even further understanding like their motivations and like what they're trying to get across with it. Uh, because, you know, them not liking a certain thing uh, can tell you like, oh, they're not interested in showcasing what this showcases, right? So uh, it can be really helpful for gathering even more information if it's a client project. Um, and then even after you choose a direction, uh, you know, it's best not to build in a vacuum. I always, uh, I mean, the first prototype you do is the sketch, right? (laughs) So get feedback on the sketch uh, or the sketches. Um, And then after that, build it, but really simply and show it to people when it's still ugly and imperfect and you can get further feedback. And so just kind of keeping that iteration process up is really important. So I'd like to, can I dig into that, the, the, the word better? Sure. Um, uh, so we've, we've evolved to speak right to each mm-hmm. other and communicate verbally. And, 
you know, you walk into a room and you're trying to tell a story to somebody. And so I'm thinking about the process of you've got a sketch or you've got an early prototype of your visualization. You're going in and talking to somebody and showing it to them to try and say, this one's better. And you're going to get a reaction from them to say that this one's better. When you walk in and you've got, you're telling a story, you're like, well, I, you know, I'm going to tell you my narrative and I'm, you're going to tell me whether you understand what I'm saying. That's a normal process for pretty much anybody that's listening to the podcast, right? But what you're talking about is trying to show something visual to someone, and we're not necessarily all that great at understanding visuals. We can easily be fooled by them, but we're also processing the visuals in our head in ways that is sort of complex and sometimes hard to, sometimes hard to explain to others. But we've also, and I'm sorry, going to layer it all <laughs> on here, is that we've also, everyone, because of the beauty of technology, we all have the ability to visualize data. Sure. Right? You know, whether it goes back to the beginning of desktop publishing, and uh, we just stumbled last week across some uh, uh, somebody using Visio in a way that was like a complete and utter disaster. Um, you know, anybody can create stuff in PowerPoint, and then Tableau takes the ability to make complex charts and make it really easy to make things that are really nonsensical. So you're getting at a point which is like really hard is like, how do you, how do you explain to somebody why one visualization is better than another? And how could you help them learn how to dissect what's better and be better at knowing what's better? I think this is an interesting question. Um, I think that it's not my job to tell people that a visualization is better. It's my job to understand or to, to make sure that I'm showing something that is understandable for people. So if I have started to create something and I'm asking for feedback, what I'm not going to do is say, this visualization shows this, this, and this. Does that make sense to you? I might just put it in front of them and be like, tell me what this says to you. What are you getting from this? Think out loud to me. And that's it. And not hold their hand. And if it's interactive, let's say, and they don't see that they can change something or dig in and they never touch it, I'm not going to tell them that that's there. I want to know that they didn't see it, that they have no idea, right? So, so for me, it's like, there's this, I think there's this like, people can often fall into this thought process of, okay, uh, if people don't understand what I've done and they don't know how to use it, it's their fault and we just need to educate them on how to do it right. But I, I think... So sometimes you can find ways where this makes sense, like where you do need to educate an audience, especially if you're doing something innovative. Like when the iPhone came out, no one had ever seen something like a smartphone. So there was probably a little bit of like education in terms of what exactly this does. However, even when you're doing something innovative, it's worth keeping like human nature and human instinct in mind. Like what will humans instinctively try to do or want to know? So I, I think it's less about telling people like, well, this is how you should have read this. Uh, and more, if the people aren't reading it well, adapting and finding a better way to tell the story. But I think that there's also like a little bit of tension here because I think that there can be this like tension around um, uh, basically like wanting to make the simplest data visualization possible. Like there's a lot of the sentiment of, you know, they should be simple. They should all be as simple as they possibly can be. You should be able to look at a visualization and understand it in 10 seconds. And I think that sometimes this is true. Sometimes you can do that. However, sometimes you have 
data that is much too complex to understand in 10 seconds and to be and much too nuanced to be able to like showcase in something as simple as a bar plot. And so while I agree that it is uh, helpful to try to tell the story visually in the simplest way possible, I don't always agree that the simplest way possible are the simplest charts. Sometimes you need something a little bit more complicated to tell the story um, and that that more complicated version may still be the simplest way possible. Can I, I want to shift and ask a, a, a sort of different question, um, which is around the question of how you think about visualizing uh, something that might change. So we spend a lot of time working with people on AI systems that are predictive systems that learn from data in the wild. And how do you think about create, you know, people naturally want to create a visualization that's, for instance, a, a dashboard as an internal corporate that's going to be updated on a regular basis based on, you know, customer data that comes in. How do you think about visualizing, setting up a visualization for something that will change? And so the story that you might want to highlight in the, you know, in the visualization will change, but you won't know that it's changed unless you stop and look at it. Yeah. Yeah. So this is a different type of thing to, to, to visualize for. Right. And in fact, this is, um, when I was at Netflix, the whole team I was on was, was doing just this. We were creating tools so that internal teams could use them to make decisions. Um, and so here, what you're trying to get as there's not necessarily like, uh, this, you're not going to be able to know what the overarching, like very specific, uh, story is. There might be context outside of that or, or whatever, but like, I think what this comes down to is, again, the importance of, like, understanding your audience. So let's say I'm building something for a specific team, like, talking to that team and understanding their process and, okay, what are the decisions that you're making on a regular basis? How do you use data to inform those decisions? Therefore, what can I highlight to make those decisions easier? Or what parts of the data are you then going to want to dig into further? And how can I make that simple for you? Um, like, some of the ways could even be that, you know, once someone's kind of zeroed in on something uh, on a data viz tool they're looking at, maybe they want to export that just smaller subset of data and dig into it. Um, so I think that there's like a lot of things you can do, but it, it really just comes down to like really understanding like what makes you, what helps you make decisions? Like what are, what's the basis of your decision-making for this particular thing? And when you're thinking about these sort of predictions, um, have you ever worked with thinking about how to express uh, the confidence that comes through from an AI system? So predictions have, are probabilistic, right? So there's an error rate, and, a, and an AI will have some level of confidence about how accurate the forecast is. But I found it's, it's challenging. I'm not sure I've seen great examples of how people add a confidence level into a visualization. You know, to help you make that decision. Well, I'm going to make a go great, good, great decision. Well, is the system 30% confident or 70% confident? Right? How do you have you had you some good examples of how that how you can do that? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I'm going to give this really annoying answer, which is it depends on what you're trying to show. Uh, however, <laughs> however, I uh, you know can point to some really interesting resources um, and some good examples. So I agree that. Um, you know, uncertainty and, and not only visualizing uncertainty, but visualizing it in such a way that people 
actually understand it is important because like, even if you show it, showing it in a way that people get what you're saying is still hard. Like it's still hard to do. Um, because, you know, so often maybe it's like, okay, maybe I'll create a histogram of distributions or something, but we're not really good at parsing area. Um, and, and various things like that. And so, uh, one thing that, or there's actually a couple people that I would highlight as people to like watch their videos. Um, I, a couple years ago at Tapestry saw, uh, Matthew K, uh, present on, um, it was called a bias tour of the uncertainty visualization zoo. And it was such a good talk. And then also Jessica Hallman, um, who also, I believe they actually are they're, I think they're both at Northwestern now. They might, I think they might even work together on some uncertainty stuff. Um, but her too, she gives really amazing talks on kind of thinking through not only like how we can visualize uncertainty, but like the ways in which people can understand it best. Um, and then some like good examples of like places where, uh, things are commonly done in a certain way, but it's not actually understandable to people is hurricane charts just really poorly understood. If, if you've ever seen a hurricane chart, you know, they, they start kind of small and then they get really big and, and there's this like cone. And I think people look at that and they might get a thought of like, Oh, well that's how, that's the hurricane getting bigger over time. And it's like, well, no, it's like, it's showing that the hurricane could, is probably going to end up somewhere in that space. Right. And the uncertainty gets big over time, but but people don't read that well. And so like, there's been a lot of thoughts on like how to show that better, um, like showing the different projected paths. Um, and yeah, it can lead to people looking at this cone and being like, well, I'm right outside of it. So I'm fine. Um, but not really understanding that this is all just like, uh, it, it's a guess. I mean, it's an educated guess, um, but it's a guess. And there's actually a really good, uh, article I'll point to, uh, visualization called those hurricane maps don't mean what you think they mean, uh, by Alberto Cairo and Talish Lasberg that I highly recommend. The hurricane map one is a really, and I wouldn't have necessarily had that one at top of mind, but you're quite right that it's almost like the same, it's the same issue as when you ask people how confident they are in something. And they, and they say, well, like I'm I'm very confident. And then you say, well, can you give me an you know give me put a number on very, and their answer is, well, you know, forty to eighty percent. And it's the actually the spread of uncertainty that makes it unhelpful to us. If if you said like I'm eighty percent confident, then we kind of get our head around that. But there's this large spread in the middle that seems to confuse us. It becomes. It, it actually just becomes not useful. Yeah. We need, we need a certain degree of certainty to make a decision. And we're also not good at hearing percentages and taking, like, there's this uh, tendency to see a low percentage and take that as meaning zero. Um, so, like, a good example is um, uh, the 2016 elections. There were, you know, different uh, different sites predicted, you know, Trump winning was only 28% or 15% or 2%, but they were all low enough that people were like, well, that's basically zero. It's fine. Like, like, um, this is a, a non zero chance, uh, or sorry, <laughs> um, seeing those numbers and thinking, okay, well, that's basically nothing. Uh, same thing with like predicting weather. It's like, oh, well, it's only 10% chance of rain. So it's definitely not going to rain today. It's low. Um, whereas if you actually, uh, 
let's say, um, what do they call this? I think they call it like risk communication, like theaters mm. or something. It's like, okay, well, let's say instead you show a, a theater seating arrangement and you say, you know, fill in 20% of the seats with black and say, you're randomly going to be assigned a seat. Are you absolutely certain that you're not going to be assigned a seat that's marked black? Uh, being able to see that makes you understand like, oh, actually, no, that could actually, that could happen. That, that, that is a thing that could happen. It's not zero. And so uh, being able to show things like that visually instead of just being like 10% or 15%, um, it, it just helps people to understand it, even though it's showing the same thing. Is there a way to specifically design visualization that takes account of how the user brings their own bias, whether it's a bias towards risk or whether it's a bias to um, this tool's there to change my mind or to fix something or to or to to offset this bias. You definitely don't want to like purposely lie with what you're doing, but I think that you can. There's different ways to show the same thing, and and that allows for more understanding. Um, and that could mean more context. Um, that could mean. Um, Actually, like, so in this, uh, the Matthew K talk I mentioned, he talks about how sometimes instead of just showing somebody like the average or the full uh, area that something might happen, maybe what's helpful is to show them a bunch of like uh, predictions all in a row that are moving and that it's like, well, uh, you know, quickly moving to show like it could be any of these spaces, right? And so sometimes people are um, able to like better get their hand around like, oh, these are, okay, these are models. Like these are our predictions for the future. It can't be exact, but here's the ways that it's modeling that it will go. So like showing the same like information, but in a way that we can just grok better. Um, so I think that's really a key is like finding what that is. And I'm not even, I mean, I'm, I'm not the expert for this. There's people who are actually studying like how people, uh, best understand uncertainty and how take in that information um, to make, you know, more informed decisions. And uh, yeah, I think it's, it's really interesting. It's one of those things that I think we all, including myself, need to be better at because it's very important. And it's also uh, a little too easy to like either not do or not do well. Yeah, and it's, it is really hard, and I think we're all we're all sort of living it at the moment as we adjust it. We adjust how we um, assess risk and and taking our masks off and going and doing other things, yeah. re-entering society, and and it's almost like this risk thing is actually really what drives um, why we don't deal very well with uncertainty. We, yeah. We're not really evaluating risk in a way that. It's all, you know, we're doing it for lots of different, we're coming at it from lots of different angles. That actually reminds me of a conversation I had just yesterday, actually. I was talking about how uh, my dad is going to come, he he wants to do a road trip and visit his kids. And I don't know if, if they chose to do a uh, road trip because they just like road trips. Like sometimes he chooses to do that instead of flying. Um, but then the question came to my mind is like, oh, I wonder if it's uh, for COVID, like that it, it seems safer. They're, even though they're vaccinated, they're still, you know, being safe. And um, maybe it felt safer to do a car trip. So I was talking to a partner about this and he's like, oh, that'd be interesting to do some 
quick spreadsheeting on and think about for the amount of miles they're traveling, what is the actual risk associated with that versus what is the risk now that they're vaccinated of going through an airport and getting on a plane a couple of times, because it might be that they wash out. Um, and, but maybe not, like, I don't know. I haven't, I haven't like looked into it yet, but it's a curious question, right? Because I think it's so much easier for us uh, to think about the risk associated with this pandemic right now, um, but easily ignore the risk that we take every day when we do things like get in a car um, and go on a trip. Uh, so yeah, it's interesting what we focus on and what we ignore. Earlier, you talked about um, visualizations where you wanted to uh, allow the people to be able to understand it really quickly in 10 seconds. Um, and then there's other times when you want them to actually experience and sort of go through it and understand it. Do you have any sort of rules or guidelines or something about when you move from a, a very straightforward visualization where you want them to know the fact and, and be able to understand it really quickly and when you move into a visualization problem where you really want them to experience it in order to be able to learn, you know, through the journey, through the, through the journey kind of thing. Yeah. yeah. I think the question is actually even more split than that. So it's, it's not even necessarily about a quick view versus exploration. Um, because earlier I talked about how sometimes, even if you're not trying to get people to explore, sometimes just a more complex, like something that people are less used to is still better. So an example, and then I'll, I'll kind of get to the other bit about uh, exploration versus not. Um, so for example, uh, just back to the Illinois traffic stops, uh, we use a swarm chart um, for this. And swarm charts, like they're around, but they're just, they're definitely not as around as just like a straight up scatter plot. So a lot of the other places, and I could send you links if you're curious, but a lot of the other places where uh, some, where this date, this kind of data had already been looked at, they would represent it as a scatter plot. So they would have the percentage of uh, white drivers who were searched on the x-axis, let's say, and the percentage of black drivers who were searched when they were pulled over on the y-axis. And then you'd get a bunch of agency dots on that. And the way that you'd have to read this is, okay, you draw this diagonal line, and if they're on the upper half of that diagonal line, it means that the uh, Black drivers were searched more, and if it's below this diagonal line, they were searched less. And so because we'd just seen those charts so often, at first we started doing something like this, but then we realized, wait, people don't care as much about these individual uh, measurements. What they care is the comparison between the two. That's what they actually care about. And having to like figure out that you have to look on the top of this diagonal line and also things get all clumped together in the corner. Um, it just wasn't the best way to look at it. And so we turned it into a swarm plot and what it's really showing is just what is the percent different? Like, um, are minority drivers searched 10 times more often in this agency or less? Or, you know, what's the comparison? And that did mean putting it, we still provided all the context to be, to be clear. In the tooltip, you can find all kinds of additional information. We showcased if things were significant or not. Um, but I was showing it in a way that was more, more unfamiliar to people because I thought that it was the better way to show it. Um, and that goes even if people, even if I didn't give people the ability to explore, um, 
Yeah. So, so that kind of gets into like sometimes something that's a little bit less, uh, a little bit less, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, familiar? Yes. Even something that's a little bit less familiar to people might be better at conveying what they really want to know. Um, and so I just tried to be good at like providing information in the tool tips that reinforced it and the labeling and, and things like that. Um, and then in terms of the other question you're kind of getting at is uh, whether you allow people to explore or you uh, tell a story. And for that, I think it, it really, again, it just depends on, depends on the purpose. It depends on like what your goals are and what you're trying to do. Um, if you want to get a specific story across, then you should do that. Um, I think that sometimes uh, there's this tendency to feel like I want to just give the audience everything. And I think there's a difference between giving the full context and just giving them everything because just giving them everything can be really overwhelming and your point gets lost. And uh, so if there's a particular story you want to tell, there's a way to provide all the context necessary, but still hone in on the specific story. Um, but yeah, sometimes you just want to create something where people can play around or find themselves in the data. But you want to give them the story um, as well. You, know, you kind of want to lead them in that way. One of my favorite visualizations goes um, a, a long way back. This was in 1995 um, in uh, the, uh, what was the, the Internet Report written by Mary Meeker at Morgan Stanley. And she was trying to tell the story of how the Internet was going to grow which now seems to be like ancient history. But she had a huge spreadsheet of numbers that talked about internet users. And it was just, a you know, as you'd expect from a Wall Street analyst, lots and lots and lots of numbers. And then she had three little boxes that highlighted um, uh, email, uh, uh, number of people who had modems, number of people who had email, and number of people who actually used the, the internet back then, which was, you know, actually going into something through a browser. And she put those three boxes together and lines and showed how those three things were at least correlated numbers and the growth of those, because she had the th boxes over the you know, three-year growth path, were totally tied together. And it was, it, it was amazing because you could, you could then get into the data. You could look around and see where all the other numbers were, and you could see whether you thought that, that the thing that she was highlighting was actually significant based on previous and future and all that. But she, your eye went straight to just the thing that she wanted to show you. And it was, it, it still stands out for me as one of those, like the great um, examples. Uh, it was also oh, turned out to be an data accurate storytelling? forecast, <laughs> but it was true data storytelling. It was like, this is how the world is going to change. And I'm going to th put three little boxes together and that's what it's going to be. Yeah, totally. I think that there's, there's ways to go storytelling route. There's ways to go exploration route. And then there's ways to combine those two. Um, something that comes to mind for me is there's a, uh, Amanda Cox did a visualization called the voting habits of Americans like you and kind of showing this like uh, comparison between the last election and like the last two elections and how there was a shift. Um, and so when you first go to the site, this is uh, on New York times, uh, the upshot at first, it kind of works, walks you through like these, like what the data is and separating and, and kind of showing you, what goes on, but then you can click through and then you can like put in your information and find yourself in the data and explore and see and, and really dig into it a bit more. So it kind of does, I think a nice job of like, of, of guiding you, uh, but also, uh, giving you a chance to explore.
One of the things I like about that that kind of exploration is that it it makes it it, it puts the right context for people to play in data, um, and it's not that it, it doesn't disrupt the the um, analytical process of developing a hypothesis and then going and actually testing, but it it, it, set, it says that sometimes it's actually totally fine to go around and play in data, but it, it sets some boundaries for that so that um, you don't end up creating a story that doesn't exist. We've got one final closing question that we're interested in, which is um, if you've got two uh, pieces of advice for AI designers and people dealing with uncertainty and systems that change, what would they be? I think my advice would be a bit more um, just kind of something general that I would say for anyone who's who's trying to to show, uh, you know, insights and data. And especially, I think, in AI, it's incredibly important is what we, what we already talked about earlier, which is, like, uncertainty and, like, showing the context and, like, giving the information um, behind what's going on. Sometimes it's really hard uh, with AI to, like to be able to do that. Um, but, uh, in terms of like full context, um, but, oh, this is a bad answer. <laughs> no, it's fine. Not at but all. It's not the bad answer. But the other thing I, I think is, is that, that, that just comes through just in, in, in everything you've said is the importance of, of staying human centered. Um, yes. understanding the goal, understanding the purpose. And even like, I wonder about how we can use visualization to track, where AI is going, I mean, explainable, explainability. Mm-hmm. Um, some of the data visualization that is used in, in these um, tools like um, the What If tools from Google and um, IBM puts out um, and, you know, ways to create ex- explainable AI by being able to interrogate data sets so that you can see bias in data sets and things like that. Totally. I think there's some really interesting visualization opportunities to make those tools more useful for people who aren't data scientists. So yeah. if you're someone in the business, you can say, hey, this is what, um, you know, this is what our fairness testing looks like for uh, all of our customers. Yeah. Um, Actually, yeah, that helped me uh, have a better response, which is that, uh, that yes, that totally gets to a point um, in terms of like thinking back to human-centered design, which is that uh, displaying and like communicating AI uh, uh, predictions and results and and things um, can be really confusing to people and uh, hard to understand. And so human-centered, like using human-centered design to make sure that what you're actually creating is not only conveying what you think it is, but is doing so in a way that people can understand and uh, aren't coming away with um, the wrong conclusions or whatever, you know? So like getting feedback uh, from people who aren't in it, I think what can easily happen when you're working on anything, especially something that that you can sometimes get in the weeds with, is you're so used to staring at it that you forget that it's not uh, that other people aren't, and you can forget those things that were maybe confusing the first time you looked at it or uh, didn't make sense to you at first. And so showing it to people that haven't been staring at it and just asking them to tell you what they see can be really helpful. Uh, may I ask you one last question, which yeah. is one of the challenges I've, with visualizing AI is that an AI system, a prediction will come out, and sometimes we don't understand why. So we don't know why 
the, the, a certain prediction is being made, right? Because it's some complex neural net or whatever. Um, how do you think about visualizing something when you don't know why the results is being, you know, is, is being given? I think that that's often what happens, uh, especially when you first start looking at, like when earlier I was kind of talking about exploratory data visualization, that's exactly what you're doing. You're, you're just looking and you're exploring. And, and the beauty of it is like, okay, maybe when you first look at it, you will have no idea what's happening, but maybe it'll help you come up with some questions and some, you know, avenues to, to explore, to try to understand what is happening. So it's like, even if it, even if it only leads you to more questions, rather than answers, that's still a step in the right direction, right? I love that. So <laughs> not, not only using visualization to figure out what the answers are and show a result, but actually using visualization to help you come up with better questions. Oh, yeah. Perfect. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Well, Molly, thank you so much for your time today. It's been really great to have you. We've really enjoyed it. Yeah. Thanks for having me. This is a lot of fun. Stay